Our second reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You'll find that on page 1149 of the Bibles in church. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Now, the passage we have to look at this morning, well, it presents us with a shocking situation in the Corinthian church. We had it read to us, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. The issue is incest, for a man has his father's wife. And the verb has speaks of an ongoing sexual relationship between this man who's in the church, who calls himself Christian, and a woman who is married to his father. It's probably not his mother, because Paul's deliberate to describe her as his father's wife. So perhaps a stepmother. Well, it's a shocking issue, isn't it? It's so shocking, in fact, that we see here that even the pagan culture of Corinth would not have tolerated it. It's a big issue, but the bigger issue, the even bigger issue for Paul, is the church's response to it. It's clearly known in the church. Paul says it is among you, but they've done nothing about it. 
Or why haven't they done something? Well, that's our first point this morning. Stop your arrogance. It's time to listen. Paul moves on in verse 2 and says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Well, it might be that the church is actually proud that this is happening. So it might be that they think this is, this is great, this is permissive, and it shows how free we are, and they're boasting in the action itself. Or it might be that Paul is saying, well, how on earth can you maintain your arrogance as a church when you're tolerating this? You've lost sight of what God has done in you. You've lost sight of who you are as the church. Because we've been seeing, haven't we, that the Corinthian church has been taking on the values of the culture around them and losing sight of how the gospel shapes their life together. We thought a while back of them a bit like horses with blinkers on, focusing on what the world values, and they've been puffing themselves up against one another, boasting in leaders, and looking down on Paul's weaknesses who proclaims the message of the cross. They're into self-promotion apprentice style rather than life together shaped by the gospel of grace. And so Paul is calling them back, calling them to listen to him, to imitate him, and to be who they are, life together shaped by the gospel. So Paul's saying, stop this jostling for position. Stop patting yourself on the back because you've got some likes from the world and start taking sin seriously And start thinking rightly about each other. And the first place he goes, verse 2, ought you not rather to mourn? It's the image of real sorrow. And it's mourning because this man who keeps sleeping with his stepmother is in real eternal danger. And not only that, the church is in danger. And not only that, because this situation is bringing shame on the name of Jesus. We saw right back in chapter 1 that the church is the fellowship of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. But this situation is dishonouring him. It's an occasion for sorrow. And if this man remains unrepentant, it will become a time for separation. Paul says it five times in these verses. Verse 2, he says, let him be removed from among you. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 11, do not associate with. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. And perhaps most shocking, in verse 5, most strong, deliver this man to Satan. I mean, that sounds very strong, doesn't it? Separation is an incredibly painful thing for everyone. Why would this be the right thing to do? Well, what Paul's talking about here is something that we sometimes call church discipline. Um, It's not necessarily an easy topic. If we've been Christian for a while, it might be something we've come in contact with. And I'm conscious that for some here, it might remind us of painful or sad realities. But I hope we'll see this morning that whilst painful, this is important and it is good and it is really loving And it is all about salvation. Why is this a good thing? Paul gives three reasons. The first is separate so that his spirit might be saved. 
his spirit might be saved. Lots of us will have a favourite piece of music um, or perhaps a favourite song that we like to listen to. Maybe you're imagining it now um, as I say that. And often there's a moment, a build-up to the main refrain, the main riff in the music. Well, in the original language, verses 3 to 5 are a bit like that. It's one sentence and it climaxes in verse 5. Verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord speaks of the day Jesus will return and bring judgment on all human sin. And Paul's great desire is that this man, who's currently in this unrepentant, incestuous relationship, is saved on that day. And so his removal from the church is not a punishment. It's about restoration. And that's really key. The goal of church discipline is restorative, not punitive. But even so, the language of verse 5 is pretty strong, isn't it? So it's important to be clear what it is and isn't saying. To deliver this man over to Satan, well, that is to treat him as someone who is not part of the church fellowship. The Bible's really clear. There are just two realms in the world. Either Jesus is Lord or Satan is is the boss. And to deliver deliver this man to Satan, well, it's to relate to him now as someone in Satan's realm and not in the fellowship of Jesus. It's like his persistent sin, his refusal to repent, is speaking to say he rejects Jesus as Lord. And the aim of treating him like this is for the destruction of the flesh. Now, some have suggested that this might be speaking of... uh, becoming ill or even dying. But that really doesn't make sense when the goal is for restoration, the salvation of this man. And it also doesn't make sense when later on Paul gives instructions about not eating with him. Flesh here instead speaks of the persistent sin. The hope is that the fleshly determination to persist in sin will be broken, that it would be destroyed. And so that when the church says, please leave, this man might be woken up and realise he's denying the Lord Jesus. And in this specific case, would end that relationship and would turn to Jesus for forgiveness and be welcomed back into the church for that ultimate goal, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Or perhaps you're looking in on Christian things this morning, you're visiting church and you are thinking, this is not quite what I expected to hear about this morning. But I hope you're beginning to see that actually this is really all about the gospel. This is all about the heart of God's work in his world, bringing salvation for sinners, salvation that is found in Jesus Christ. But how do we get to this point? How do we get to this point in verse 5 where the man is being asked to leave the church? Because it seems a bit like Paul has kind of blazed in here and it's a bit out of the blue and he's demanded this to happen. How did we get here? Well, verse 3. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man. 
See, Paul wants the Corinthians to pull off the blinkers and listen up and start making gospel-shaped decisions. And he makes the point twice that while he's not actually with them physically, he is there in spirit. What does that mean? Well, the end of verse 4 helps us, I think. He says, my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Paul's an apostle of Jesus. He's commissioned by Jesus to speak his words. And so his word and this judgment, well, it comes with Jesus' authority. In other words, he's calling the Corinthians to live under the authority of God's word, to take seriously what scripture says, and so take this situation seriously. I think this makes it clear for us that any decision to remove someone from the fellowship of the church, well, it must be rooted in Scripture. There's no place here for personal agendas. It must be rooted in God's Word. And it's also not an isolated decision. Verse 4, when you are assembled. There's no place for a kind of movie-style excommunication where a cleric demands someone leave. The decision is made corporately. How this looks in practice, I think, will vary uh, depending on the size and the structures of the church. A principle we seek to use here at St. Helens, where we're a large church family and multiple congregations, is that church discipline is known as widely as the situation requires um, that it is known. And so we trust this will very rarely look like a full church meeting. More often, it would involve relevant leaders or church family members probably within our small group setting. But it's not an isolated decision. And it's gradual. When we look at verse 3, it seems like this all happens very quickly. Paul makes this judgment and then it all happens. But a number of things show that this was gradual. Verse 9, we see Paul's already written about it. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. It's just that they haven't addressed it. And it seems quite possible that some in the church, well, they may have been calling him to repent. But this is a divided church, it's arrogant, and no action has been taken. But the situation remains, it's persistent, it's unrepentant. But it's not a step we rush to. Jesus makes this clear in Matthew chapter 18, where he talks about this. Well, he says there are steps. First, talk to the person one-to-one. If they still won't repent, perhaps come with two or three. And then to the church, with gradual steps, giving time and opportunity for repentance before coming towards this point. But it is a point that, on occasion, we may need to come to because we care about a person's salvation. One writer puts it like this, Is it not more loving to send this man out of the fellowship that he might be brought to his senses rather than to tolerate his sin and cause his eternal loss. And whilst restoration might not always be the outcome, it sometimes really will be. And it seems in this case it may well have led to the man being restored. We can't say it for certain, but in 2 Corinthians, Paul calls for a man to be reinstated into the church, someone who they had separated from. And now this man is repentant and Paul says, welcome him back. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 7, turn to forgive him and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed with excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. 
What a wonderful thing. A brother or sister snatched from the fire and restored. Separate so that his spirit might be saved. Separate because the church, and also separate because the church is being saved. Our next point, verse 6. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Again, Paul is challenging the Corinthians boasting. They need to listen to him and to act for the sake of the individual and for the sake of the church. Because the church is a place that is concerned for salvation. The imagery here in these verses is the imagery of the bakery. And in verse 7, the church is described as unleavened, flatbread. And this takes us back to the Exodus. We heard it read earlier. The Exodus where God's people, Israel, were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. As God brought judgment on Egypt, his people were saved from his wrath by the substitute death of a lamb. And then as his redeemed people, as they left Egypt, they took unleavened bread and they would celebrate a festival of unleavened bread each year as a reminder of who they were. No longer slaves in Egypt, instead belonging to God, called to be his people, to live for him. And all this pointed forward to the work of Jesus. So Paul can say to the Corinthians, he can say to us, remember who you are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has died as a substitute in our place to take upon himself God's wrath that we might be forgiven, redeemed from slavery to sin and its penalty of death and reconciled to God. And in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, puts it another way, he says, the church is being saved. Sustained by Jesus, guiltless on the day of our Lord Jesus. We are unleavened, set apart for God, called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul says, be who you are. And that's verse 8. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. To celebrate the festival is to live as unleavened people. To live sincerely with Jesus as Lord, looking forward to his return, sure of our salvation. And so Paul says, quit the boasting, quit the jostling, and be concerned for one another's salvation. Don't let the leaven of unrepentant sin spread. Verse 6, your boasting is not good, do you not know? that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Well, we're back in the bakery. And the image is, well, it's not using yeast like we put in our bread makers. It's the image of leaven. You'd keep a bit of the fermented dough back each time you made bread. And you'd use it to mix the next batch. And then each time as it mixed and it rose, then you'd take a bit to keep back again so you could keep on making nice fluffy bread. But if the leaven became contaminated, well, the whole lump would go bad. I learned this week that apparently in 1972, Cadbury's had to destroy 25 million Easter eggs because the yeast in the cream went bad 
and they all cracked as they were being delivered out of the factory. Well, Paul is waking the Corinthians up. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I was chatting to someone recently about how a toxic culture could grow in a business environment. And well, it spreads because it's tolerated. And people start to say, well, this must be okay then. And the same can happen in a church. It's striking, isn't it? That sin always has a corporate dimension. We often think it just affects us, but it affects it. They spread wider. And if persistent, unrepentant sin is unaddressed in the church, well, then it can spread. And it sends the message that perhaps, well, actually, this is okay. But really, it's denying Jesus as Lord. How would we spur one another on to flee temptation, to battle sin? Sometimes when it's really countercultural, when each week, as it were, the man who sleeps with his stepmother is being treated as if there's nothing wrong at all. Separating from this man is not only loving to him, it's loving to the whole church. Separate so that his spirit might be saved. Separate because the church is being saved. And finally, judge appropriately so that the world would know salvation. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul's written on this topic before, but the Corinthians responded by trying to separate themselves from unbelievers in the world. They were getting into judging the world, which is God's job, rather than being concerned for its salvation. But Paul doesn't want the church to hide from the world. He's not calling us to quit our jobs and run to the monastery. And he says, anyway, that's crazy. If you wanted to avoid sin, you would just have to go out of the world. No, we're to be engaged in the world. Of course, we make wise decisions about where we go as we seek to live for Jesus. But if we cut ourselves off from the world, if we try and live in a ghetto, it would stifle our witness. Paul wants the church to associate with a sinful world that needs to know the message of the cross of Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he corrects this error. And verse 11, he makes clear what he's saying. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to each with such one. Now as we hear him say this and, and read this list out, he's not talking about um, not associating with Christians battling with sin in the normal Christian life. We all sin in different ways. And the pattern of the Christian life is one of ongoing repentance. He's not talking about that. He's not asking us to sort of try and hide from one another. But Paul is reminding us that there are areas beyond simply sexual immorality where it could be possible to get to the point this man has reached calling ourselves Christian, bearing the name brother or sister, but after the gradual process of being sought to win back and to repent, still persisting in unrepentant sin. And for the sake of the individual, for the sake of the church, and for the world, the witness to the world, Paul says, 
don't associate, not even eat with such one. Well, the word associate here, it's got the idea of mixing with or being part of a group. And surely this would have had in mind the person not joining in with the meal of the Lord's Supper. But it seems to also suggest other gatherings or social interactions that imply fellowship might be in mind. I think working this out in practice is not simple, but it seems we do need to consider what expressions of fellowship may need to be avoided in this kind of situation. To consider what we're communicating to the individual, to the church, and to the world. Israel were redeemed from Egypt to serve the Lord, but also to be a light to the nations. So the church is to live in sincerity and truth. So our message of salvation is not compromised as we hold it out to the world. So is the way we're relating, communicating that there's no issue? Or are we communicating with due sorrow and a longing for restoration that this person is outside the fellowship of God's people? Because we actually long for them to be restored and come back in. Well, as we close, some final comments on how we seek to apply this here at St. Helens. First three things we should take care to avoid. Number one is, well, we've seen that none of us here, as we've seen, none of us here is to, none of this is to inspire us to a kind of critical culture among one another, hunting out sin and having no compassion for human frailty or weakness. That would be really destructive. And of course, the normal Christian life is one of a battle with sin, where we do fail, we take it seriously, we repent We come to Jesus and we press on to follow him as Lord. So we want to be encouraging one another in that. A place where we can confess sin to one another. It might be even this morning as we've been considering this passage that there is a sin you're conscious of that you need to turn from. Well, that's a good thing. Bring it to Jesus. Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Second, this is not an excuse for power play amongst church leadership. There's none of the kind of do what I say or you're out. It's not an excuse for that at all. And thirdly, church leaders are not above this or exempt from it. Indeed, leaders among us are to model humble obedience to Jesus. As I heard one church leader put it recently, to lead the way in repentance. Well, what does it look like then in practice as we seek to apply this in our life together at St. Helens? Well, praise God it happens rarely. Having chatted to a few people this week, it really does happen rarely. We can praise God for that. And our aim where a brother or sister is persisting in unrepentant sin is to be gentle and to be gradual to follow the pattern laid out for us here and in Matthew 18, at each step calling for repentance, prayer and pleading, giving time for people to consider and respond. And it does strike me that often where there's an unwillingness to repent, there can be a misunderstanding or a losing sight of the character of God or the gospel. It may be that someone here this morning knows they are choosing to live in a way that denies Jesus as Lord. Can I urge you again to consider again the character of God? 
what he has done for you in Jesus, his goodness. And to look again at Jesus, he has great compassion on our weakness. He gives us access to the throne of grace to give mercy and grace in the time of need. Can I urge you to turn back to him and to confess your sin and follow him? We want to be gentle and gradual, giving time at each step to consider how to respond and only then, having made things clear, what the next steps are to separate. And typically this will look like stopping attendance at our small groups. Our Sunday meetings are so public and open. It's the small groups where this would take effect, usually as a key expression of our fellowship. And finally, in a church the size of St. Helens, it is our practice only to make church discipline known as far as the sin is known. If it were me or William, you would need to know. But the purpose to guard the church, it seems, only requires discipline to be known as far as the sin is known among us. And so all this happens with due sorrow and yet with a real hope and a prayer for restoration and with arms wide open to welcome someone back if they repent, and with the goal of salvation for the individual, for the church, and for the world. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, please help us to be a church which is not arrogant, but listens to your word. Help us to grasp more and more deeply your work in us through Jesus so that our life together would be shaped by it. May we be a church family who repent and depend on Jesus our Lord. And please give us wisdom and love to act where necessary in church discipline, always with the hope of restoration and the goal of salvation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.